Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that we came back after a little break and that our time off was uh, enjoyable. Thank you, Father, that we've had a chance to remember all the many th- things we are thankful for. And thank you, Lord, for the, this building and for the way they've improved it for us and all the, the ways in which it uh, will serve us well. I pray that the study tonight, Father, will enrich us because it's been prepared for us. I pray that the, the Spirit will be working actively in our hearts. I pray that He will give me words that will suit you and your purpose and what you've given us through your word. I pray that our hearts, Father, will be prepared. I pray that we're open to what you say and that we consider these things carefully. I pray that we will live according to what we learn. I pray all these things, Father, for that is the purpose the body gathers, to become like you through the influence you offer in your word and your spirit, and that we may please you in these things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we exit chapter 4 and enter chapter 5 tonight, Paul has effectively argued that the law is not our means to salvation. It never accomplished that purpose. It can never do that. We looked at the example he gave last week at the end of chapter 4 with Sarah and Hagar as an allegory. And through that, Paul stressed that even the law itself taught that God justifies through faith alone. Ending at the end of chapter 4 with the teaching of how the children of Sarah and the children of Hagar are different. The children of Sarah are those who depend on God's promises, while the children of Hagar are those who would choose or desire to be justified through their flesh. And so all of what we've studied up to this point has been addressing this issue of how we are justified. So as we enter into chapter 5, Paul is ready to wrap up this discussion of soteriology, of salvation, and move into other things. But before he does that, or as he does that, Paul's going to remind the church that any dependence on law instead of on grace for righteousness is a no-win proposition, one that always demands perfect compliance and therefore one that will never suit us. And as he does that, he's going to turn in a new direction before the chapter's out. The new direction is to explain how the Christian lives under grace instead of law. So we're shifting out of justification and into sanctification. This is a real opportunity for us because I know from my own experience There are many who will agree early and easily that we are not saved or justified by our works, but then they will just as quickly turn and say, oh, but you can be sanctified by keeping the law, by using it as your guide into holy living. That's a mistake also. And so we're going to see that as Paul gets to that point. And he says that since the law of Moses is no longer our guide for living, he then raises the question of, well, then how does a Christian know how to follow the Lord? How will a Christian know how to follow the Lord if we do not have the law of Moses as our guide? Although it's easy to understand we're saved by grace from the penalty of sin, now the question is, how do we preserve ourselves from the reality of it in our everyday life? If the law doesn't regulate us, what does? That becomes the next question. So, if you're taking notes, the outline for tonight in chapter 5 has three points. First, Paul is going to discuss two extreme and opposite responses to grace. On the one hand, how we can make a mistake of trying to combine grace and law in our living. The other extreme is to make the opposite mistake of living a licentious lifestyle in which there are no regulations or limits on us. So one extreme is to think that I have to be regulated in my Christian walk by the law. The other extreme is to think I have no regulation on me whatsoever. I can do whatever I want. And then the third point Paul will cover toward the end of the chapter is the proper middle ground that all Christians should seek. And that is living by the grace of God, enjoying the freedom that's been won for us on the cross, 
but at the same time maintaining control under the influence of the Spirit in a walk of holiness and self-restraint. So that's the middle ground he's going to argue for. So we are clearly moving out of a conversation of soteriology into a conversation of sanctification, of a walk in our faith, but he will make that transition at the beginning of the chapter. So let's turn to chapter 5. He opens with a thesis statement that sets up the rest of the chapter. Chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul's opening statement sets forth the principle of a Christian's relationship to the law of Moses. There is no stronger statement that I know of in all the Bible on this topic. Highlight this. Underline this. Memorize this. Follow this. So much burden and misery and heartache and confusion could have been avoided over the long history of the church if only more Christians understood this verse. First, Paul says, it was for our freedom that Christ set us free. What he means is, Christ released us from the obligation of trying to keep the Mosaic Law so that we could now serve Him freely. Because under the law, God's people endured severe restrictions on the way they could serve the Lord. The law restricted who could serve, when they could serve, how they could serve. It even restricted the audience they could serve to. Jews being separated from Gentiles. But now, Christ has fulfilled all that the law required, both by His perfect sinless life and by His sacrificial death, which paid all the penalties of the law. Jesus, thereby fulfilling all of the obligations of the law, on our behalf, all the requirements of the law have been met in Him. That's why, by the way, when Christ died on the cross, He declares, it is finished. He was referring to the work keeping the law. The work under the law, to include the requirement of a sacrifice, to include the result of an atonement. The work of keeping the law was finished. All the penalties of the law had been paid. And therefore, the law itself was finished for those who accept Jesus' accomplishment on their own behalf. That's why he says we are now free to serve God without concern for what the law says about who or when or how we do these things. We've been set free from it. And Paul says Christ came for this very purpose. He came for the very purpose of fulfilling all that the law requires so that those who follow him in faith would no longer have to do so themselves, to set us free from those restrictions. Obviously, the first purpose in him setting us free from the law was to save us from the penalty of the law. His death took the place of our own death under law. So we now live in freedom from a fear of death from a fear of judgment. What a difference it makes to serve the Lord without any of that guilt or fear. Living as someone who used to think that what you did made the difference in whether or not you would be received well by God at your death. That whole issue has been settled at the cross. I have no concerns of that anymore. I go to my death fully confident that I will be received in peace because of what Christ has done. So now I don't, I know I don't concern myself with what I do from that perspective anyway. What a difference, right? We serve Christ free from such worries and burdens. But the second thing Christ did in fulfilling the law for us was so that we would not need to be burdened by trying to do any of the restrictions of the requirements of the law ourselves, because we could not even meet those requirements anyway. So what a shame it is when we refuse to take advantage of the very freedom 
Christ has won for us. And in fact, it says came for the very purpose of winning for us. I want you to imagine yourself living as a slave in some ancient past kingdom. When the king of that kingdom comes one day and pledges his entire fortune to win your freedom from your master. By his grace, in other words, you will be set free from that enslavement. But then I also want you to imagine that despite the king's payment, you voluntarily choose to remain in your enslavement. You're opting to continue suffering under your burdens, burdens that your king paid dearly to relieve from you. Now, how do you think your king is going to view your voluntary return into a slavery that he paid to free you from? That's effectively what we do. When Christ has come and done what he has done, and the scripture now tells us that he came for the very purpose of setting us free from those obligations, and then we voluntarily reassume those on ourselves, and we do so ironically thinking we're pleasing him, and the scripture says you're working against the purpose he set forth in coming. How happy do you think Christ is with that kind of a mindset? Essentially, that's the situation Christians assume when they legalistically mix grace and law. They assume, and I think most do it with best intentions and with a sincere desire to please God, it's not that their motives are wrong, it's their method. They assume upon themselves a limited form of slavery, thinking that they are pleasing the Lord by voluntarily adopting restrictions that he intended for an entirely different purpose, for an entirely different audience in the first place. And in reality, they're throwing the gift of freedom that he won for them at the cross back in his face. Now, I emphasize, I don't believe they think that. I certainly don't believe they mean to do that. I think they have the best of intentions. I think it is ignorance of the worst kind, an ignorance that is selective in attending to certain things in Scripture while ignoring other things that are very clearly stated. They refuse to live in the freedom of Christ, one, through his perfect life and sacrificial death. They haven't lost their salvation by this behavior, of course, but they are forfeiting the freedom that grace offers. Now, in his letter to the Colossians, Paul warns the church not to do this, just as he is doing here in the Galatia. He warns the church in Colossae not to succumb to pressure from others to re-enter slavery to the law. And he says it this way in Colossians 2, verse 18. He says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen. Inflated, without cause, by his fleshly mind. And then jump to verse 20. Paul says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Which are all references to law. And Paul says to the church in Colossae, I love the way he he words this, because it really, I think, reflects the way this comes about in many people's experience. He says, he commands actually, Do not allow someone to defraud you of your prize. And the word prize is, in context here, a reference to liberty. It's not to salvation. You can't be defrauded of your salvation. He's speaking to the prize of liberty. That is the freedom to live without regard to the law. Paul says, if we have died with Christ to the law, in other words, then why act as if such restrictions still have power? Clearly, that lifestyle is not only unnecessary... It is sin. I think by what Paul says here and what he's saying in Galatians, we can conclude that when someone does this systematically with an intent to improve their own righteousness, they are sinning because they are testifying to a lie, which is that Christ's 
expects us to keep the law and that doing so makes us more righteous. Both of those are not true. Both of those are lies. And when we testify in such a way through our life that those are true, we lie and therefore we sin. That is why Paul taught earlier in the letter, we do not have the liberty to place ourselves back under the law in a systematic fashion. And I want to emphasize that aspect of this systematic fashion. We have liberty. We have the opportunity to enjoy on occasion certain memorials or other rituals taken from the law. And we also, I think, have the liberty to institute some detailed aspects of law on a continual basis, like keeping a Sabbath if you prefer to. But we do not have liberty to reimpose a lifestyle of slavery to law in an attempt to mimic or recreate or romanticize a Jewish lifestyle. Doing so is an affront to the work of Christ on the cross. So where is the line between a little and too much? Well, that is not something we can define. There's an issue of heart there and an issue of spirit leading there that we have to contend with. But as they used to say about art and other things, I'll know it when I see it. There are those whose lifestyle is preaching a lifestyle of submission to the law. That's where they've crossed the line somewhere. Versus the one who simply uses the law in a constructive and useful and in a purposeful way, such as to keep a Seder meal on occasion because of the memorial of Christ embedded in it, to keep a Sabbath on occasion because of the way it memorializes Christ as well, or for the health benefits of it, or for whatever other reason. But that's far different than some of the things we've all seen in which people construct for themselves this artificial lifestyle under the premise that by keeping the law, they made themselves more holy. It's a lie. Instead, Paul gives us the command in this first verse to keep standing firm and not to be subject to a yoke of slavery. And his command in the Greek here is in the active imperative voice, which means we must continuously make an effort to keep this command. Never let your guard down. We must actively protect our freedom standing in an unwavering way in confidence that we do not need the law for anything. Men will come along, I know from time to time, I've encountered them myself. They'll try to convince us that slavery to Old Testament rules and regulations is necessary for righteousness, that it's the fast path to becoming more righteous. But Paul says we must continuously resist such men and their teaching. As James Montgomery Boyce once said, Obstinate perseverance to freedom is the only proper response to any attempt to bring Christians once more under legalism. Obstinate perseverance to freedom. Secondly, Paul says, do not be subject. So he says, stand firm, meaning resist continuously. And then he says, do not be subject. In the English phrase, do not be subject, in the original Greek, it means do not fall into entanglement. The sense here is one of being caught in a trap from which we will never escape. We cannot allow ourselves, Paul says, to become entrapped legalism in any form, whether to the law of Moses, to some other set of rules, whatever it is, can sound seductive and it can even become persuasive to us because of the way it appeals to our flesh and our sense of self-righteousness, self-made righteousness. It is set by those who do not understand our freedom and grace. They often have very deep and convoluted arguments They usually are based on twisting Hebrew or Greek words and emphasizing history and Old Testament commands. And if we are not prepared to stand in the Bible's teaching on this point, we can easily find ourselves taken away by those arguments and ultimately led into a trap that you cannot get out of in the sense that your flesh will love it so much you'll never let it go. 
I even encounter people now who've been ingrained with this concept of you've got to have a true Sabbath or you cannot do this or you cannot do that. And the very thought that they can pass that yoke off and live under freedom still leaves them feeling a twinge of guilt every Sunday morning when they go out to work in their yard. If that's what they choose to do. I mean, it's instinctive. It's how hard it can be to throw off the yoke that others have placed on us. Paul calls the burden and the restriction of the law of Moses a yoke. And we are like that slave then, voluntarily re-entering slavery even after our freedom has been purchased. A weight. Think about what a yoke does to an animal. It's not only the weight of it, of course, but it's the restriction of it. And the way it forces you into something that you don't otherwise want to do. It's an instrument of work. When the animal got the yoke put on, it knew it was work time. That's the feeling. If we are ever fooled into thinking the law has a place in our Christian walk, we have placed a yoke of slavery on our necks. Remember from our prior studies, for those of you who have been here for a little while, back in our studies of Exodus, do you remember that we said the law is a single, indivisible entity as God has designed it? We cannot divide it into parts. There is no such thing as the ceremonial law and the moral law. Those are things men came along with and, and decided later to suit their own purposes in trying to retain part of the law. For it was clear enough that the ceremonial parts of the law, so to speak, could not be fulfilled without the temple. And so in order to hold on to some parts of the law, they had to divide it into things where they could say this still applies and this does not. Sheer nonsense. We cannot divide the law, not even the Ten Commandments, from the rest of what it says. James, as you know, says that if you break one law, you've broken them all. Paul says we owe nothing to Christ because he has met it all. The law is never described in parts. It's never described in elements. It is all or none. The law. So either you wear the entire yoke or you throw it all off once and for all. Either you keep all 613 commandments or don't bother keeping 612 because if you break one, you might as well have broken them all. Having set forth, therefore, the principle of Christian freedom, Paul now addresses from that thesis the first of those three points I said we would cover. The first being the error of attempting to unite Christ and law together in some kind of melded Christian experience. He says in verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So Paul gives this wonderfully clear and bold statement to the church. He starts even by saying, I, Paul, say, you know, he's very clear about the fact that this is not optional and he's not willing to debate it. He says, in direct contradiction to the teaching of the Judaizers, if you receive circumcision... It means Christ is of no benefit to you. Now, these verses are often a source of some confusion or even bad doctrine in some cases because we fail to see the nuance of everything Paul is trying to say here. But when we examine this text carefully, it comes together properly. First, Paul teaches a conditional cause and effect relationship. The condition is if someone, a man obviously, receives circumcision. It's when he says receive. That word in Greek makes very clear he's talking about someone who is willingly accepting to receive circumcision, but also along with it, all that circumcision represents. 
A person who receives circumcision is not just agreeing to take this mark on their body. By that mark, they are agreeing with all that the Judaizers were teaching concerning the importance and the necessity of doing that thing. You can't take that mark without intending to take all that it means. He's agreeing that salvation was by means of Jewish law for those who were of the Jewish people. He's agreeing that the death of Christ is not sufficient in and of itself to save me, that there was this step still required if I was to be saved. Otherwise, why take it? So that person, if they willingly take circumcision, they are demonstrating that their trust for eternal life resided in keeping the law instead of solely trusting in the work of Christ. So for that person, Paul says, Christ is of no benefit. Now, this is what he means. He means if you and I try to add anything to the work of Christ, we nullify our belief in Christ. Many people have tried to roll their own formula of salvation, so to speak. They take a little bit of religion A, they take a little bit of religion B, and they concoct their own recipe, so to speak, for salvation. I've been in homes where there's a Buddha, right? And there'll be some Hindu pagan god, and then there's like a Virgin Mary. Well, what is it you trust in? Well, they're doubling down. They've got everything covered. And maybe there's a picture of Jesus on the wall somewhere. Paul says, if you've added Christ to your own recipe, you might as well subtract Christ from the recipe because he's of no benefit under those circumstances. There's no point in adding Christ to a formula that includes any other steps or requirements, whether they are other gods or works of the flesh, because grace does not work that way. The gospel declares we are saved by our trust in Christ alone. And if we place our trust, even partially, in anything else, whether works of law, gods, whatever, then we are demonstrating we have not placed our trust in Christ, by definition. And therefore, Christ does nothing for our salvation in such a situation. He is of no benefit. That's why Paul says it that way. Because he knows they're talking about adding something to Christ. If you had said to these people, well, you're not trusting in Christ, they would have said, much as the Catholics do, well, of course I am. What's not being said is, but I also need to do more than simply trust in Christ. That's where you can then say, well, then Christ is of no benefit to you. So Paul says, adding circumcision to Christ effectively denies Christ in the process. Just as when, as I said, the Catholic Church teaches that salvation is a combination of faith in Christ plus penance. They deny Christ in that effect. Just as when the Mormons teach that salvation is a combination of Christ plus good works and temple observances, well, they deny Christ in the process. Just as when the so-called messianic Christian movements, at least some of them, those that require adherence to the Mosaic law as a condition of righteousness, they are denying Christ and his sufficiency to bring righteousness apart from our works. And to emphasize the point, Paul repeats himself in verse 3. He says, I say again, if someone receives circumcision... They show they place their trust in the law to obtain righteousness. Because that person is expecting to be granted eternal life on the basis of not only whatever they think Christ did, but also on the basis of what they just did to their own body, which is a work. Paul says, if you chose that route, if you think that's your route to salvation, he says, you had better be prepared to keep the entire law and to do so perfectly forever. That's what you just signed up for. Because we gain no credit for partial compliance with the law of Moses. Something we've echoed here, I know, on numerous occasions, back to the book of Exodus and in other places, I'm sure. 
God designed his law to be an all or nothing standard. And the reason he did that was to demonstrate to us how futile it is to try to keep it. He wanted us to understand we are unrighteous and in need of grace. And that's why he gave us a law we have no hope to keep perfectly as is required. We don't even get benefit for keeping 99% of it because James says to break one is to break it all. The law is a standard that is unforgiving and therefore impossible by design. And therefore, Paul says, anyone who receives circumcision is obligated to keep the law by its own standard, which is that you must keep it all if that's your source of righteousness. And of course, it's an impossible standard. And therefore, every man or woman who places his trust in the law will be disappointed in the end. They will find that neither their justification and, importantly, nor their sanctification will have been achieved by that method. Certainly, trusting law for salvation reveals the absence of saving faith. We've already understood that. But a believer who relies on the law for their sanctification is equally wrong. Christians who've been deceived by others to think that that following some or, or supposedly all of the law of Moses is somehow helping them achieve some greater holiness have completely missed the point of the law. God is not pleased with partial obedience. Even a Christian who keeps 612 of the 613 laws in an attempt to be more sanctified is still failing to please the Lord because even that one law, that one violation, has left them guilty of all of the law. So how much real sanctification was achieved by failing to keep a law that requires perfect obedience to please the Lord? You made no progress. In flesh... You may have appeared to in your own perspective. You may have thought yourself holy, but that's why we call it self-righteousness. It never went beyond our own heads. Technically, we are just as sinful as if we had failed to keep any of the laws in the first place from God's point of view. So what real good was there in the ones we did try to keep? Partial observance to the law is the only thing possible today because God has designed it to be that way. The temple and the Jewish priesthood have been destroyed by God, on purpose, so that it would become literally impossible for anyone to keep the law's requirements after Christ had come. And if we place our trust then in law, even for sanctification, we are going to be frustrated by that attempt because we cannot keep it. We have to keep flipping pages and say, well, that doesn't apply, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. Oh, there's one I can, let me cut my sideburns a little longer. Can't do that one, can't do that one, can't do that one. Oh, here, let me do this one. You see the problem, right? Is that how God's law works? No, we know it doesn't. But we make excuses for the fact that, well, we can't keep those, so we'll keep the ones we can. To what benefit? Jews today are frustrated in their attempts to keep the law for the sake of justification. And Christians will be frustrated in their attempt to use it for sanctification. The writer of Hebrews tells us, God took away the ability of men to keep the law so that we would trust and understand to trust in something better. Hebrews says in 8, 8, uh, Hebrews 8.13, When he said, the Lord said, a new covenant, he has therefore made the first obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The covenant he's talking about, everything in the covenant, which includes the law. Hebrews says when a new one was established, it was our way to understand we don't need the old one anymore. No one called it the old covenant until there was a new one. So to sum up, Paul says in verse 4 that anyone who takes circumcision in the belief that will make them more righteous has been severed from Christ and fallen from grace. 
because they have placed their trust in law, they benefit not at all from the knowing of Christ and the gospel. Now, some have read these words and concluded Paul is describing a believer losing his salvation, right? And there's some sense there that you can sort of understand that conclusion because of words like sever and fallen. But the context of Paul's argument, to say nothing of the rest of the New Testament, precludes that interpretation. Paul is speaking here of someone who has never come to faith in the first place, and we've seen that already. Look back at the description in verse 2 where Paul was saying that taking circumcision means you have not benefited from Christ which is a way of saying you've not yet received Christ, right? Christ doesn't provide any benefit when he's combined with some other source of righteousness. It's like adding a useless ingredient to a recipe. You might as well leave the ingredient out. He's already said that about this group. So then Paul says, we are severed from Christ in the sense of I've got all these idols on my shelf, and Paul is saying, no, that one with Jesus, we're knocking that off your shelf because it doesn't apply to you. You've been severed in that respect. We've fallen from grace in the sense that we've come up short of accepting grace on its own terms. Like someone who leaves a fiancé at the altar. They got close to a lasting relationship, but in the end they came up short of a true marriage. The writer of Hebrews, by the way, speaks in exactly these same terms, under the very same context, about someone who fails to embrace the gospel to the point of saving faith. He says, for example, in Hebrews 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we've had good news preached to us, just as they also, speaking about Israel in the desert. But the word they heard did not profit them, did not benefit them. Like what Paul says about Christ, he's of no benefit to you. He says, the word did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Later in chapter 12, the Hebrew writer says this, 12 to 15, he says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. It's very similar language. The point is, there's this notion that you're hanging around the edges, that you've heard the message of the gospel, but you've come short of it, implying you've not fully received it, fully accepted it. Because that makes sense under these circumstances, because they have appeared to accept it. They've embraced Christ. They embraced him as part of a recipe. That's not true embracing. That's not true faith. But it can appear like it is, and so we talk about it in these terms. Someone who's fallen from grace. Come short, not quite. It's describing someone who, though they appear to have accepted Christ, have never truly done so. And Paul is now calling them out for that and saying, these actions you're taking reveal the truth of your heart. Like when the Galatians willingly receive circumcision, they come up short of grace. Now, in contrast to falling from grace or coming up short, true Christians will depend upon faith exclusively, Paul says. And I want you to notice the transition he makes to prove the point I've been giving you in my interpretation. Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul changes. He stops talking about you and he starts talking about we. He makes a distinct shift here, separating two groups of people. You have been severed from Christ. You have fallen short of grace. While at the same time he says, we, we the Christians who rely, rely on the Spirit, are content to wait for our righteousness to come in the future through a faith that we've been given. What Paul is saying is this. Christians, true Christians, are no less interested in righteousness than all of these pretend Christians were who were running around trying to make themselves holy in one fashion or another. Christians desire righteousness just as much as those people do, but we don't seek to obtain it through works of our flesh by following a law we know we can't keep in the first place. 
Instead, Paul says, where do we rely on or how do we expect to receive this righteousness that we all so much desire? He says, we hope for it. We hope for righteousness. That is, we trust that one day it will be ours in the future by God's grace through our faith. We understand that our faith brings us righteousness in a future day of God's choosing. When we receive our glorified body, then and only then will you have obtained righteousness in your body. The only day you will be able to say you are righteous in effect and not merely in justified position is the day you receive your new body. So when you and I talk to the term of wanting or seeking righteousness, we talk in the same terms we did when we talked about our salvation. We hope for it. We trust in it. It came by a promise and it will be ours on God's appointment by his power. And the moment of our glorification is the moment of our true righteousness. Now, in the meantime, what must we do? We depend, Paul says, on the spirit to lead us toward sanctification. But we don't fool ourselves concerning our ability to get there in our own works. That's the difference. We know we continue to fall short of God's glory each and every day. Righteousness is not a scale. It is a point. You are either righteous or you are not. Good teacher, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So when we talk in terms of sanctification, we're talking about movement, yes. We're talking about progression, yes. We are not talking about righteousness, though. You are not, I am not righteous. Christ is, and his righteousness lives in us, but we do not ourselves have it as yet. We hope for it. We know we continue to fall short of the glory of God, yet each day we move closer to Christ in the sense that our heart and our actions begin to align in greater degrees to what is righteousness out here. We are not becoming more righteous. We are moving toward what is righteous. But until we reach there on the day of our glorification, we remain 100% unrighteous in our life, in our bodies. So simply put, nothing a Christian accomplishes by the flesh moves us a step closer to our ultimate righteousness. It is not as though our righteousness can be thought of as some kind of tank filling up day to day until it becomes fuller by our own works and reaches the point of maximum righteousness at some place in the future. In reality, the story of our life while we wait for our new body is one of two tanks. Our spirit tank is already totally topped off and full by the righteousness of Christ, while our flesh tank remains as empty and bankrupt as it ever was. So we are not trying to spend our time on earth, wasting our time trying to fill up our flesh tank to increase its righteousness. It's not a fruitful endeavor. It doesn't work. And it's of no value to God because he's doing away with this body because it has no potential for that improvement. Simply put, we cannot fill it up enough to please God. And in the end, it's replaced anyway. So keeping law does not bring us closer to sanctification, whether we are circumcised, Paul says, or not whether we abstain from certain foods or not, whether we observe certain festivals, days or rests or whatever. These things are not our path to righteousness, neither for justification nor for sanctification. The recipe for sanctification must be exactly the same as it was for our justification. It comes by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul said, faith working through love. If you want a recipe for moving closer to God, to being sanctified in that sense, that's your recipe. Faith working through love. That's the full sense of freedom and liberty. Many Christians struggle with the concept of liberty simply because it does not have boundaries. 
in the traditional sense of a law or a set of restrictions. When they have the understanding they can live in a full and free life of activities apart from sin, they're confused by that freedom. God has already done the work of righteousness. He has already granted to us a spirit of righteousness. And in one day in the future, he will grant to us a body of righteousness. So we are free to serve him without concern for recovering from sin or for achieving righteousness. Because he settled the issue of sin for us already. And because he promises to deal with the issue of our righteousness one day with a new body. In the meantime, we don't try to work two works that have already been worked for us. I don't try to save myself, nor do I try to make myself holy. What I do intend to do is please the Lord. And that means removing myself from sin, which is a different issue than trying to make yourself righteous. There's a difference between being righteous, which only God is right now. There's a difference between that and abstaining from sin. I can abstain from sin, but I will still remain 100% unrighteous as long as I inhabit this body, which is itself sinful and unrighteous. So why then remain preoccupied with seeking righteousness by law or any other means, apart from faith alone? The problem is, this church knew things at one point in the past that Paul had taught them, but as soon as these men rode into town with a better plan, with a, with a recipe that could be written on stone instead of the one that had been written on their hearts, the tangible nature of it drew them away and gave them something concrete, which men love. And that's why Paul gives them this, this rebuke in the next section. Verses 7 through 12. Here is the rebuke for those who have chosen to mix grace with faith. Paul says in verse 7, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Paul says, you know, the church had been running well, but somebody hindered them from obeying the truth. Interesting way of putting it. It's like a foot race. And I think it's an apt comparison for our spiritual test of endurance that we have when we live here on earth. We have to exert effort. We, we run to receive a reward by our perseverance. These are all good metaphors for our walk. Paul says, you were doing that. And then he extends the metaphor and he says, who hindered you? In other words, who put a stumbling block in front of you as you were running this race of endurance of spiritual maturity? The Greek word for hinder means literally to impede, as in to put a block in front of somebody. So what Paul's asking rhetorically is, who's standing in your path on your way to the finish line and the reward? And then to drive the knife even deeper, Paul says, they weren't being persuaded by the Lord, the one who called them into the faith. Instead, this teaching is the product of some kind of sinful motive from someone he didn't know. And he says, leaven affects the whole lump of dough. He says, this church was likewise being introduced to false teaching and it was polluting the entire body of the, of the church. And once again, the obvious answer to all his questions are the Judaizers. He knew that, they knew that, he just didn't name them. He says, these men were disturbing the church. They are going to bear God's judgment for this false teaching. Look, if there are people in Paul's day teaching, we must adhere to the law. And Paul himself says, that is not a teaching from God, and that is something you will bear judgment for. We have all the things we need in this chapter to know how to respond to someone who comes and tells us we must keep law. They are not teaching something from God. They will bear judgment. 
judgment. Leading them away from the truth and into diversions that profit them nothing is sin. And Paul says, for you to the church, he says, I have a better hope that you would recover from these deceptions. Probably because he's writing them right now and he hopes this will have that influence. And then to help that process along, he takes aim here at a very specific complaint or very specific criticism that must have come from the Judaizers. One of their lies concerning Paul in verses 11 and 12, Paul denounces this accusation that they have made, they have cast this dispersion against Paul. What they have claimed is that Paul is out preaching circumcision and the need to keep the law whenever he was with Jews. But then he comes to the Gentiles and these Judaizers were telling the church in Galatia, Paul's holding out on you. He's going to his true friends, the Jews, and giving them the full gospel and he comes to you and he's shortchanging you. He's failing to tell you about the need to become Jewish and he's not telling you about the law and because he didn't give you the truth, you're not really saved. That must have been pretty persuasive from these men because it seemed to be working. But it's a lie, convincing lie, and particularly for Gentiles who didn't respect Paul's authority, but it's still a lie. And then Paul proceeds to blow this huge hole in their logic. He says, okay, if it were true that I was out preaching to the Jews that circumcision and law were required for salvation, then why do the Jews still persecute me? I mean, the main objection that Jews had to the message of the gospel was that salvation was on the basis of faith alone and not through the works of the law of Moses, and it was therefore available to Gentiles as well without the need for circumcision. You couldn't offend a Jew faster than to say something like that. Paul says, This truth is, in fact, the stumbling block of the gospel. This is why the Jewish people have not received the gospel, because of this element that Paul says is the stumbling block. But Paul says, well, wait a minute. If I'm out doing what these guys tell you I'm doing, then we'd be saying there's no stumbling block. And certainly they wouldn't be persecuting me. In fact, the Jews would have embraced the gospel, and that certainly isn't what's happening. So, in other words, the Judaizers' accusations don't add up to what they could see for themselves. And then, one of my favorite places, Paul, in all of Paul's letters. This is a rare display of strong language by Paul. I think the only other time I can think of is when he talks about his own works as a Pharisee being dung, which is literally the word that you know I mean. But this is similarly strong. Paul says he wishes that the men who are advocating for circumcision would just mutilate themselves. What Paul says in the original Greek, though, is quite graphic. Paul is saying if these men believe, sincerely believe, that a little cut to their foreskin is making them more holy, then they should go all the way and cut off the rest too. Because if a little cut is good, then more would be better, according to the logic of their teaching. That's literally what he's teaching. Do you think you would need any more strongly worded denunciation against those who impose Jewish law on Christians than this? I don't think you could find one. Galatians 5:13 through 15. We now look at the second objection. So if the first objection, the first error in how we apply the truth of the law is that we think, even as we may be saved by faith in some cases, some of these people may have been, we think that we enhance our lifestyle for God's sake by adopting the law as our guide to righteousness. Paul says you just threw a yoke of slavery on yourself and you're working with a standard that you can't meet. And so all you're doing is proving to yourself and the world day after day after day that you're not righteous rather than actually promoting it in your body. And then to the opposite error, which is, oh, then I don't have to keep any law. I can do whatever I want. There's no sin for me in anything I do. That's the licentiousness that you could run to at the other extreme. Paul says this in verses 13 through 15. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom 
into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one, by one another. So the second error, clearly the opposite of the first, is living a licentious lifestyle. Now what's leading Paul to go down this line of thought? Why did he move from where he was to now the opposite side of the problem, talking about those who might have dispensed with law too much, so to speak? Well, perhaps he's concerned that his strong arguments against following law are going to lead to something called antinomianism, which is a false doctrine that says Christians live with no restrictions of any kind of law whatsoever. That's antinomianism, which is a false doctrine, a false belief. In that thinking, we find opportunity to engage in any kind of sin, thinking we have the liberty to do so because we've been freed from all law. It's an abuse of the scripture's teaching concerning freedom. And Paul says here clearly, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Now, that's one purpose he may have had or one reason he may have had in raising this argument. But there's another. The other purpose is he may have been preempting the Judaizers. Because when this letter hit Galatia, it could have come to pass that the Judaizers would claim Paul was actually teaching antinomianism. They might have made that accusation against him. They could have said, look, if you go with what Paul's saying, you'd have no law whatsoever. Everyone would be out doing sin. Clearly, that can't be right. Well, of course, Paul is not arguing for antinomianism at all. Paul is arguing for something far different. But regardless of the motive, Paul makes clear here that Christians may not abuse their freedom. And he says we can't allow it to become an opportunity for the flesh to lead us into sin. What he's meaning is this. We have, we have the freedom to enjoy many activities in our Christian walk, to associate with anyone, by and large, to spend our time and our money in almost any way we can imagine. We have the freedom to eat and drink anything, including alcohol, including eating pork, including shellfish, including many things that were restricted under the law of Moses. We have all of these freedoms, but none of them can become opportunities for us to pursue sin. Well, what makes sin? Well, we can stimulate lust in our body for the wrong things, including eating too much, drinking too much. We can act in ways that offend others, including causing others to stumble because of carelessly exercising our freedom in ways that are too callous or without any regard for someone's feelings or for their own convictions. We can promote lust in others by what we wear, by how we carry ourselves. We can promote greed in others by how we display our wealth or display our own possessions. We can display envy in others, jealousy in others. In other words, we can provoke, by how we live our lifestyle, lustful sin in either our own body or in the members of another person's body. And in all cases, what we're allowing the flesh to do is to take over and drive us away from the Spirit's influence. And you notice Paul doesn't say anything here about righteousness, does he? He does not talk about this in terms of righteousness. Remember, the issue of our righteousness has been settled. Righteousness in our position has been settled, and righteousness in the fact of our existence will one day yet be settled. In the meantime, the issue is to love. That's an active word, right? Love is a verb. It's not a noun, it's a verb. So, rather than provoking lust, we have to consider everything we do from the perspective of love for a brother or a sister. We are to regard the needs of everyone as equal to our own and then live in such a way that we concern ourselves with how to love others, guided by the Spirit in us. So that means we seek to make godly and holy choices in the face of an infinite number of situations. And what defines holy is the leading of the Spirit. 
There are countless things in life today that we encounter every day that are not covered whatsoever in the law given to Moses. And yet in each of those situations, there is a right and a wrong path to take. And the spirit living in us is constantly there and always able to define right from wrong in those moments. And therefore, we are always under the influence of someone who can direct us into holiness. He is not making us righteous. He is making that moment pleasing to God and that it is demonstration of love. So rather than acting without restraint whatsoever, as antinomianism would say, in reality, we act with great restraint, self-restraint, based on a sensitivity to the needs and concern of others in love. It is self-restraint under the leading and the conviction of the Spirit. This standard, when it's applied, when we live according to it, takes us far beyond anything that the Mosaic Law could ever have achieved. The law, by the way, did not mandate and could not prescribe love. The law never mandates, nor does it prescribe love. Prescribe meaning define it out, show how it's to happen. The law says nothing to the issue of love. Yet Jesus said that everything the law required is fulfilled by loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, having loved God first. So clearly, if, God, if Jesus commands us to the standard of love, and yet the law does not promote love, then Jesus must have been appealing to something better than the law when he gave that command. And that way is by the Spirit through faith. So Paul says, if we attempt to live without love or without self-restraint, we can devour one another. Our liberty, in other words, will become an excuse for us to take what we want, to have what we want, to live as we want, and all of that becomes to the detriment of someone else. That's why Paul says we will bite each other in the sense of injuring one another. And if we injure each other enough, we consume one another in the sense that all fellowship is destroyed and the body of Christ falls apart at the seams. Who wants to be around a bunch of people who do nothing but serve themselves? No, we wouldn't be able to stand being around one another, right? So Paul has explained that living under law is wrong and living without law is wrong. So how are we to live? Through faith, by the Spirit's work in us. Look at verses 16 through 18. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Paul's words in this passage are very short. They're very similar to his teaching in Romans chapter 7 and 8. He uses the metaphor of walking in the Spirit, much like John does in his letters, right? Living under the control of the Spirit. That's the sense of the word. And he says, as long as we live in this sinful body, we will know and experience the draw of our flesh into sinful behaviors. But by our faith, we at the same time have the Spirit living in us, telling us that these desires are wrong and calling us to better things, to better choices. And every Christian knows these two driving forces. I'm commonly confronted by people with the basic question of how do I know what God wants me to do? And I understand it. I've felt it myself sometimes. But if we stop long enough and become transparent long enough, we realize this isn't as hard as we make it sound. Countless times a day, we experience the flesh tempting us to do something that is not in keeping with love. From the simplest thing of lazily just throwing our litter on the ground or leaving the toilet seat up or failing to yield to another driver on the road, things that we know are demonstrations of love or the lack thereof, depending on how we choose to react in that very moment 
And it goes up the scale from there to more significant things like breaking laws, cheating customers, lying to co-workers, gossiping, slandering others. And of course, at the top of the chart, you have things like sexual immorality, violence, idolatry in many forms, and so on. We all face these to varying degrees from one day to the next. But at the very same moment we face those choices, we know the voice of the shepherd who calls us by his spirit to move away from those things even as we experience the draw of the flesh. If you test your own heart on this, you'll know that what I'm saying is true if you're a Christian. When we first contemplate dropping that piece of litter or breaking that law or spreading that false word, it is in that same very moment that we encounter an alternate thought. We feel it. It's an uneasiness, perhaps a hesitation, or we think about our course of action just for a split second. It's in that moment you're hearing from the Spirit. You cannot say you have not had that. You cannot say you have not heard from the Lord because you know that moment. Paul says the spirit and the flesh are always opposed to one another. And then look what he says, so that you may not do these things. He says, I have set the spirit directly in opposition to these feelings so that you won't have any doubt. So that it will be clear and obvious. It just doesn't have to be a megaphone. When we first encounter these things, we feel the other tug. This means that those split second moments of indecision or of contemplation are themselves the evidence of that Romans 7 experience that Paul describes so well. That moment when two things are in opposition pulling and you have to make a choice. You see, as an unbeliever, there's no second thought about dropping the litter most of the time or, or whatever their particular proclivity to sin may be. There's no second thought of it. You have a unique experience they don't have and you didn't have before you became a believer. That moment where you think, you know, something about this just ain't right, but I'm going to override that and I'm going to drop the litter anyway out of sheer laziness or whatever else may be motivating you. That simple plan of action forms in your flesh and it begs you to move forward. But then as immediate as it comes to mind comes the other one that says, no, you have a better path. And in that moment, you're making a decision about who you listen to. As I leave my dish on the counter, I remember my wife would rather me put it in the dishwasher so that she doesn't have to do it for me. What is in my mind in that moment defines what I do next and what I do next defines sin. Either you go with the first thought or you move with the Spirit's influence. And the first thought is always the sin. One of these choices shows love for yourself and the other shows love for God and others. One is sin, one is righteousness. Now, we've all been there. But depending on how you've chosen to respond to that moment in the past, you may find one voice growing more persuasive over time while the other fades. If you have made a habit of listening to the flesh, then you will begin to deaden your sensitivity to the spirit. So that when you face one of those split second decision moments, your hesitation will be even shorter because your decision won't be very difficult because your past pattern of giving into the flesh will make your choice reflexive without even a thought to what the spirit is offering. Without any thought, you just go with what's familiar, making sin a lifestyle. And we do it in different ways. Some of us do it in certain areas of our life, certain habits, certain things we choose, not necessarily in all things. Some go to the point where they're doing it in every aspect of their life, and we see them as someone who's completely gone off the rails. The Spirit, though, never goes silent, but we can become practiced at ignoring Him to our own destruction. On the other hand, the good news is we can become practiced at listening to the spirit and disciplining the flesh, which is Paul's command to us in the Bible's strong teaching throughout the New Testament. We are to take every opportunity to say yes to the spirit and deny our flesh and its desires so that at the first sign of conflict between those two voices, we move quickly and with determination to follow the spirit. 
And what will happen over time is I'll stop asking the question whether I do one or the other. The first sign of the sin is met by a quick response in the spirit, and I'm only listening to the second voice. Billy Graham once told a story to illustrate this, and I'll finish with this story. He tells of a competition between the flesh and the spirit through a story in which an Eskimo fisherman came to town every Saturday afternoon. He always brought with him two dogs, and one was white, the other was black, and he had taught them to fight on command. And every Saturday afternoon in the square of the town, the people would gather and these two dogs would fight and the fishermen would take bets on who would win. And on one Saturday, the black dog would win. But then on another Saturday, the white dog would win. But the fishermen always bet on the winner. And his friends began to ask him how he always knew which of his two dogs was going to win. And he said, well, I starve one and I feed the other. And the one I feed always wins because he's stronger. So to the question of what law do I follow? To the question of how I move in holiness now that I know the Lord, the issue is you have an infinitely wise law written on your heart that's always ready to contend with whatever the flesh may raise as a potential opportunity for sin. We are not being more righteous by that lifestyle. Our righteousness is found in Christ alone. But we are certainly becoming more pleasing to God and a better witness and more loving. And all of these things have a great reward. Man, we have a choice. All right, let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the chance to, to hear from your spirit in our hearts. Thank you for the opportunity to make the right choice by your influence. Thank you for the word of God that reminds us that we need to do these things. Thank you for the love and the prayers of people around us in the body who give us the strength to do these things at times and for the forgiveness of those when we have not made the right choice. Father, we know you forgive us, for you've forgiven us for all things. But Father, don't let us turn that into an excuse to live without concern for whether we please you. And don't let us try to make ourselves righteous in the process for those things don't please you either. And all these things give us wisdom and patience and courage and strength and a complete and utter dependence upon you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.